Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Let's talk about clams and mussels and oysters, too. There are so many ways to love these guys. Steamed, baked, served raw, or with pasta. These days, lots of them are being farmed, many in the Po River Delta in Italy. The industry is critical to the people who live there. So Italians are more than pleased to learn that not only are the mollusks yummy, they also play a part in stopping the planet from warming even further by sucking in carbon. The surprise was that at the end they act as a sink. Later on, some people are taking action on climate by marrying their work with activism. We'll revisit a few of them, including a hairdresser who supplies information and advice about the changing climate, along with a cut and blow dry. Guests are like, oh my God, tell me more. What can I do in my household to reduce our footprint? What can I do with my kids? Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Laura Lynch. Okay, not every climate story also involves a recipe for clams with pasta, but this one does, and it starts at a river delta leading to the Adriatic Sea, part of the Mediterranean. It's one of the most overfished areas in the world, but there is some good news, and it comes from clams, mussels, and oysters farmed where Italy's longest river, the Po, empties into the sea. Not only is the harvesting of them far more sustainable than fish farming, there is also strong evidence to suggest the bivalves, as they're also called, actually absorb CO2. CBC's Italy correspondent Megan Williams spent a few days on the Po Delta with clam and oyster harvesters, and she joins me now. Hi, Megan. Hey, Laura. This sounds like a great assignment. Um, I've never been there, um, but we had heard a lot about the Po River last summer when a record drought and high temperatures led to parts of the riverbank being exposed, and they found old tanks and weapons from the Second World War that that were emerging as the water level dropped. But as I said, I haven't been there. I don't know much about the Po Delta. I didn't know that it produces clams and oysters. Well, I have eaten a lot of dishes of pasta with clams or, or pasta alle vongole, as it's called in Italian, which is a prized pasta dish here in Italy. Um, but I had no idea where the clams actually came from or their impact on the environment until I recently spent some time with some fishers in this amazing area on the Po Delta called La Sacca del Goro, which means the Sack of the Goro, which is a little coastal town in in, in that part of Italy. Sack, hmm, okay. Where, where is it exactly? 
Well, it's on the northeast coast of Italy, so south of Venice, um, and at the end of the Po River, which is this long, Italy's longest river that winds past these small, beautiful little cities like Parma, which is, as many people know, famous for other culinary delights like prosciutto ham or Parmesan cheese. Oh my goodness, lots of gastronomic delights, but that also means it's a river that's really important for agriculture hugely important for agriculture. It provides water for like three quarters of Italy's agricultural products. So at the end of the Po in the Delta, uh, there's this vast expanse of water, sort of waist deep water that's a confluence of, of salt water from the sea and fresh water from the Po River. So picture this eerie blue-gray mist that seems to go on forever and stretches of sandbanks. So, you know, when you're moving through it, you can't really tell where the land ends and the water begins. There are flamingos in the distance, um, storks and herons are floating above. It's actually a UNESCO heritage site, and it's also a place where local people are deeply connected to all of this wonderful nature. How so? Well, for centuries, this was a very poor region where you know people lived off the fruit of the sea and the delta. They ate fish, eels, uh, and, and mollusks. And, you know, they're still to this day trying to protect this delicate balance. And they use, like, ancient knowledge and practices. And they've also managed to revive... Uh, sustainable new ones that kind of got lost along the way. So I went out on a fishing vessel early one morning to harvest clams with Vadis Paisanti. He's this tall, energetic local fisher in his mid-50s. And he heads one of the many co-ops. There are about 2,000 or so fishers in the area, and they're all divided into co-ops. Um, it, this is actually the biggest clam harvesting site in Europe, which I didn't know before I went there either. Aspettiamo, che cosa? L'escursione della marea. So as we glide through the fog, the, this particular morning was incredibly foggy, just enshrouded with, with fog. We couldn't see anything. He's talking about the tides and following the phases of the moon. E' governata dalla luna. And also, he's talking about the different kinds of rain and winds, like the Shiroko, which is this hot, dry wind that comes from the Sahara Desert and dumps orange-colored sand, and techniques to navigate the fog. He uses radar, but, you know, other sort of more ancient practices, like these wooden marker poles in the water and ways to call out to other boats. Del Delta del Po, caratterizzata da sempre dalla neve. Wow, it sounds just so evocative the way you're describing it with all that fog. Has has clam harvesting always been a part of life in the Po Delta? Well, no, actually, no. It it died out at a certain point, largely due to pollution from the agricultural runoff of the Po. And it was thanks to Vadis and other fishers from these co-ops who revived it several decades ago uh, and made it into this this flourishing industry that it is today and a sustainable one in, in a number of different ways. Um, beginning with the practices of the fishers, they don't harvest more than they sell. Here's Vadis explaining the system that they have. Alla cooperativa, 
Our fisher cops take the orders for clams from buyers the night before, so we harvest the exact amount that's needed. This means we work only as much as we need to fetch a proper price and don't consume more fuel that is needed. We also decide among us where to harvest, so we don't over-harvest certain areas and we throw back baby clams into the water after, to seed the area for more growth. Okay, I see. So, so they cut back on the emissions and the food waste by not har- just harvesting everything that they can in a day. That's right. And I, I actually got a chance to see that harvesting in action. So here we are. We've made it through the fog and, and put on these heavy rubber overalls and are in the water with this motorized hydro scraper, which, which shoots up the clams that are nestled just under the sand. And they collect them in this kind of floating bin and then haul them up on board. And that's when the selection begins. They, they you know, take the big ones and put them in these uh, in big bags and they throw the smaller ones back in. And as they're working, Vadis tells me about another environmental benefit to the clams. And this is one that research from uh, the nearby University of Ferrara, uh, along with the University of Manchester in the UK, backs up. Uh, namely that shellfish in the Po Delta actually create what's known as a carbon net sink. Okay, okay, so that means they absorb more CO2 than they emit. Exactly, and I was able to talk to one of the main authors of the report at the University of Ferrara, which is just about an hour inland from, from the Po River Delta. That's environmental scientist Elena Tamburini in her lab in Ferrara. And she explained to me, after in English, how the shells absorb CO2. We understood that uh, uh, while they are growing uh, through the, the process of biocalcification, they are able to um, capture CO2 from the sea in uh, their uh, shell. So it, it was interesting uh, to compare the environmental impact in terms of uh, CO2 emission related to production and uh, the CO2 naturally absorbed during uh, growing. And the results, the, the, the surprise was that at the end they act as a sink because the, the environmental impact due to production is very low compared to the capacity of absorbing CO2. You can hear the smile in her voice there as she talks about the surprise. So it was obviously a pleasant surprise that, that they actually absorb more carbon in their shells than they emit through the action of harvesting them. But how much carbon are we talking about? Well, the study found that one kilogram of clams can bind more than 250 grams of carbon dioxide, CO2. Um, Now, clam production requires just over 20 grams per kilogram, um, and they harvest about 15,000 tons of clams a year. So um, there's a fairly big difference between, uh, you know, the pollution created in harvesting and the pollution, the CO2, absorbed by it. Like, it's not a negligible difference. And, you know, you compare it to a mature tree that might take it about 22 kilograms a year. But here we're talking about food production. Right. And that, that, that's a very rough comparison. I understand that. Uh, but uh, the, I guess the important thing here is 
it's enough to ensure that the farming and harvesting isn't contributing to global warming while it's actually doing the job of feeding people. So are there, but are there other benefits to mollusk harvesting? There are. Um, it also has a much lower environmental impact compared to other kinds of aquaculture, for instance, like fish farming. Here's Elena Tamburini again. First of all, uh, the farming uh, follows the natural cycle of uh, the organism. And so they don't need to add any feeding or chemicals, additives, uh, drugs. On the contrary, fish farming, uh, for example, sea bass, sea bream, salmon, are very intensive. And so they use uh, feeding and uh, some other chemicals uh, responsible for high level of uh, seawater pollution. Of course, living here on the West Coast, I'm well familiar with with fish farms and the the kinds of things that they have to do and the controversy that that's caused from time to time. So this, no chemicals added and a CO2 sink. Uh, Are there any other studies that are backing up the findings? Well, there are. I mean, Elena and other scientists told me that 20 years ago or so, um, studies looking at CO2 emissions of mollusks uh, focused exclusively on the individual organism of a clam, so not the whole surrounding ecosystem. And those older studies actually found that clams emitted more CO2 than they absorbed. But more recent studies now take into account the whole ecosystem, like like Elena's uh, research and from the University of Ferrara in Manchester. Um, so what they took into account is the fact that while clams do give off CO2 as they breathe into the water, all of that CO2 is absorbed by plankton in the water and never actually reaches the atmosphere. So even adding up all the CO2 emissions related to their harvesting, like you know fumes from the boats and machinery, clams are still a net carbon sink because of that absorption. And this could have policy and economic implications to do with carbon certificates, where shellfish producers one day could sell carbon credits to other more polluting industries as a way to kind of, you know, further supplement their income and, and support their activity. Okay, these things are starting to sound like little miracles. <laughs> so the, the study, it, it, it covers the emissions in harvesting, but... but Megan, there's still the shells. Yes. You don't eat the shells. So what do you do with the shells and to ensure that that doesn't contribute more emissions? Well, disposal of the shells is is kind of the elephant in the room. It, it's a really important part of the CO2 equation, and it needs to be addressed. I spoke with another scientist, Sasha Rajcevic, who is a sustainable fisheries researcher at the Italian Environmental Protection Agency, and this is what he said to me. If you sell them and then people put them in the waste and they will be burned, okay, then this CO2 will be released. So that is another point. Yeah, so you you know, you know can't burn the shells after because that, that's just going to negate all, all the gains that, that, uh, that come from shellfish harvesting. So Sasha says there are projects underway, for instance, uh, to use the clam shells to rebuild, for instance, eroded seawalls in the Adriatic Sea. And, you know, you can also, they can be used to make cement or pavement, that sort of thing. But apart from the full life cycle of the shells, he says what really needs to change is how fishers in the Adriatic and Mediterranean in general 
use science to adapt to the challenges of climate change? As a single fishers, they adapt very much, but uh, let's say as a group, uh, they are less effective. And, and I think that they, they have to improve in these regards. Stronger cooperation and integration with policy, and I would say also with science, because science is seen mostly as the, the, the tool that provides some indication regarding how to restrict fisheries, hmm? not, not as a tool that could enable them to, to survive. Uh, so that so they need to understand that science is there to help them because all they've ever understood is that science was there to stop them from fishing as much as they wanted to. So, so, so exactly, what, yeah. So, what are some of the environmental challenges they're facing? Well, I found out about one uh, of, of several when I went out one another day with Vadis Paisanti uh, to a, a different mollusk project that the co-ops launched about five years ago. So here we are once again wading into the water with the rubber overalls. Though this time we're a lot closer to the shore. Um, just in front of us are these round nets hanging on lines with oysters in them. And it, it, it was just an absolutely beautiful sight. The sun was going down, you know, gleaming reflection on the water with these nets hanging there. Uh, and just Behind them on shore uh, was a marine research lab that collaborates with these oyster harvesters. En mon français, au chevet du champagne, au chevet de l'huître. Okay, I do speak some French and understand some. I heard something there about oysters and champagne. Exactly. That That's Laurent Citerlin, who's originally from France, as you can tell. And he's a, a former fish wholesaler in the area. He was just joking about how the French either produce oysters or champagne, in his case, oysters. Um, with the help of one of these fishing co-ops, uh, Citerlin, and a local marine biologist set up this very first oyster harvesting operation in the Delta. Um, and... They've even managed to breed an indigenous oyster, which, which they very sort of proudly presented to me, uh, the golden oyster, <laughs> which, you know, is I, I wouldn't say it's exactly golden color, the shell, but close enough. And, you know, this is sort of, this is like this next big product that they're, that they're you know, going to market and, and probably export to France, who knows. Okay, golden on the outside. Yes. <laughs> I hope it tastes the same on the inside. <laughs> well, they're producing more and more of them. And it, it's it's a small operation at this point, but it is another success. And um, it's yet another project that these co-ops are producing. That said, um, there are environmental threats. Uh, here's Laurent Citerlin talking about just one of them. This year and last, we've been very concerned about the lack of rainfall, which provides fresh water for the oysters and prevents certain kinds of worms from attacking the shells of the oysters. That makes them more fragile by reducing the quality of the shell. Okay, so there's a drought, but I'm wondering, does that affect the clams as well? Yeah, it does, because it... 
it raises the temperature of the water. And even when I was there, you know, now, which isn't the peak of summer, uh, the, the, you know, they were talking about the temperature of the water being, being higher than it's, than it's been in the past. But anyway, the clams can resist that to a certain extent, but not if it goes on for too long. And there are other environmental concerns like fertilizer runoff from the Po, which can create too much algae. Uh, and most recently, an invasive species, the blue crab that, that has come all the way from the Atlantic Sea, that reproduces at this terrifying rate, uh, and it doesn't have any predators here, and it can virtually eat through anything, including shellfish. Wow, how are they handling that? Well, they're trying to catch them. They're a little further out than the shellfish, so they haven't, you know, they're not eating all the shellfish yet but this you know the solution sort of goes back to what scientist Sasha Rajevich was saying which is namely that policy needs to move fast like the science it needs to cooperate with the fishers and, and policy changes need need to be made uh, in this case uh, he was saying you know a policy that encourages the harvesting of the crabs and and in tandem developing a local market for them you know perhaps through economic incentives Chinese, uh, Italian, like Chinese who live in Italy are coming to the Goro to buy the crabs, but but Italian buyers aren't buying them to take them to, you know, fish shops throughout Italy. So they need to kind of figure out a marketing tool there. I say that they don't know what they're missing. <laughs> I, I've more than a gentle nudge to get them to try them, and I'm sure that they would love them. But But what he's saying is, that, that adaptation comes in all kinds of for, different forms. It, absolutely, and that's the name of the game. And I think that's what struck me the most about these co-ops in the Po Delta is that they're doing just that. They're 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 adapting. Um, but Vadis Paisanti, uh, the fisher I went out with, said to me that they also have to shift their thinking of of their themselves, their identity, and and not just consider themselves fishers as they have for centuries. They need to get other sorts of skills. He talked about learning other languages, about um, you know becoming just just broadening uh, your skill base and your knowledge, and being able to politically advocate for the kind of policy changes that you know is needed to protect the mollusk industry and keep it flourishing, but also this this beautiful area in the Po Delta. The dream would be that we can do this job. We can be aquaculture, fishermen, biologists. We would like that politics can let the fishermen and the aquaculture work in this beautiful area to keep this area healthy, you know? Why? Because we know now that clams and etc. is better for the environment. You know, Megan, listening to, to you talking about all of this, and, and it brings me back Two years gone by when I could just go out to a beach up the coast and dig up clams and go inside and cook them mm. for dinner. And I just, I love clams so much. I'm just wondering after after you doing all of this work, visiting the Po Delta, learning about all this sustainability, mm. are you eating more of them? Well, okay, I, I am planning <laughs> on eating more of them, believe me. <laughs> like, you know, I, I 
I never get sick of eating clams like you. Um, and I'm, I'll be eating them differently and differently in two ways. One, I, you know, it's, it's a guilt-free pleasure. You know, oftentimes when we're eating, we kind of sometimes, you know, we'll feel guilty about what we're eating. So knowing what I learned now, it's like, yeah, enjoy those clams. And I'm going to be eating them in a different way also in terms of the recipe when I make it at home. Um, you know, in Italy, it, it's absolutely verboten to put Parmesan cheese on pasta with clams. Like Italians are just horrified at the concept. <laughs> um, but in this particular area, the Sacco del Goro, um, which I mentioned is just down the Po River from Parma, which produces Parmesan cheese, they actually add Parmesan to the recipe. They don't, they don't add it after, like you don't sprinkle it on in the restaurant or where, you know, once the dish is ready, but you sprinkle a little into the pan while you're mixing it around with your garlic and your olive oil and maybe a splash of white wine and, and parsley. And so it dissolves and it just adds this like amazing little extra um, kind of savory taste to the dish. Okay, my mouth is watering. How was it? It was absolutely delicious. And, you know, it made me, like, Parmesan <laughs> has what, you know, the Japanese, the u- umami, that savory taste to it. And, and it added that to it. Megan, the sacrifices you make for your journalism. <laughs> Anything to get to, the, to, to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, even clams. Megan, thank you so much for talking to me about it. It's, it's been great yeah, chatting with you. Yeah, you too, Laura. It's been a real pleasure. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. I just want to take a minute now for an important climate news story this week. Canada is one step closer to revealing its plan to cap emissions in the oil and gas industry. The fossil fuels in that sector are the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases in the country. Just a few days ago, Ottawa quietly released its support for the recommendations of a House of Commons committee. It was looking into the hows and whys of creating the cap. Ariel Durange is the executive director of Indigenous Climate Action. She's from the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, whose territory is at the epicenter of the country's oil sands. She says a cap on oil and gas should include a phase-out of oil production and a plan for the communities it's affected. So if we are going to be putting a cap, we also need to be talking about what is the outside of that and not just talking about transitioning workers. What does it mean to transition communities? What does it mean to build new systems that are looking at that truth and reconciliation that the Trudeau government continually calls for? It's not going to just come from a from retraining sectoral jobs and creating new energy systems. It's going to have to involve an entire overhaul of the structures of Canadian and Indigenous relations when it comes to economic development. And just to let you know, we're working on a special episode all about energy transition or sustainable jobs, as the government has now come to call it. We will bring that to you later this spring. 
People involved in all kinds of work can find ways to take action to protect the planet. And we're going to revisit some stories about people doing just that in some surprising ways. A year ago, we spoke to Sophie Gilbert. She was a professor who gave up the secure life of a tenured academic for the front lines of fighting for climate solutions. You know, my science really focuses on tracking and predicting how nature, especially wildlife, is responding to and will respond to climate change and land use change in the future. And so the reality is, while yes, that's helpful, the most helpful thing I can do for wildlife and nature is actually go fix climate change. Eugene Kurpachov has a similar story. He gave up an eight-year career at Google to, as you heard Sophie just say, go fix climate change. Now he's the co-founder and executive director for Work on Climate. I spoke with him last summer, and I started by asking him what prompted him to leave a secure job to focus on tackling global warming. Gradually, I've been learning more and more about climate. And I think the first time that I really started scratching my head about it was when I was on a 13-hour flight uh, to visit our team in Zurich, and I watched The Inconvenient Truth. And then on the flight back, I watched the sequel to it. And that got me thinking a little bit. Those are the films on climate change that are spearheaded by Al Gore. That's right. Yes, it's those. What was it about those films that, that got you thinking about it? They were just pretty clear about saying that there is a problem and the problem is substantial and we better do something about it. And uh, after that, I just began every time I would run into somebody who knows a decent amount about this topic, I would ask them, is it really that bad? (laughs) Google, for example, Google has energy scientists and climate scientists internally. So I would ask them and they would be like, yeah, 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 it's, it's really bad. So for a while, I was just getting more and more concerned about it. And a few other resources also increased my concern. And then watching Greta Thunberg speak made it more personal to me because here is a living, breathing person who is going to live with those consequences. And just eventually it reached a level for me that I uh, couldn't justify to myself why I'm still working on something that isn't climate. And I left together with my coworker, Cassandra, also from Google AI, I wonder what your colleagues at Google said to you about your decision to leave. Everybody was actually very supportive. Uh, Even my manager, whom I was leaving, he tried to convince me to stay inside Google by pointing out that Google has projects related to climate. And it's true. Uh, There is a lot of things that Google is good at there. Google is one of the pioneers uh, of, for example, power purchase agreements. But I just can't say to myself with a straight face that it's ever going to be Google's main thing. And I want to be working on something where climate is the main thing. So you you decide to leave, and then I guess you're looking around for what it is you can do. Tell me about that that search for for where you could work, where you thought you could make a difference. I wrote a goodbye post, and it went viral. Uh, (laughs) It turns out that a lot of people are really concerned about climate and really want to work on it. Um, My post resonated with a lot of them, so we ended up connecting, I think, probably with a few hundred people who are in climate and a similar amount of people who are not in climate. And we decided to just do a little experiment and put them into a community. And when you least, say community, you, you mean an online community? Yes, yes. Uh, we wanted to put them into an online community and structure it uh, so that people would have an, you know, a good time finding jobs. It's almost as though you stumbled into this, this area where you could make a difference because you were going to help other people get into the sector as well. Um, you've said your mission is now is to make working and climate more mainstream. And I'm wondering what you mean by that, because um, I know a lot of people who work in climate and, and more and more of them are working in it. So is it not mainstream right now? 
oh yeah, it is not mainstream. I have yet to meet even one person who isn't already in climate and who knows that climate jobs exist. When I tell people that I'm working on getting people into climate jobs, most of the time the reaction I hear is climate jobs, there are climate jobs. <laughs> the second most common reaction is uh, when people say, oh, climate jobs, you know, that you must be working on policy or, oh, I must need a climate science PhD to work in one of those. Would be nice if somebody did something about it. So people don't realize that actually climate jobs are just jobs because we are rewiring the whole economy and every sector of the economy needs to be rewired. And whatever sector you're working in, that sector needs to be rewired and it needs your skills to rewire itself. Okay, so tell me what you're doing so people can understand at work on climate to, to help people make that transition to make these jobs more mainstream. So what we have done uh, so far and for the first year and a half of the organization existing, we were basically trying to help people in our community find climate jobs. For example, mentorship. You can just go and book some time with a climate expert and talk to them about how your skills fit in. Or you can come to an event and hear from an employer that needs people like you. But I realized that the real opportunity here is not just helping people in the community. It is to get the full power of the mainstream talent ecosystem behind getting people into climate jobs. We need more like 100 million people in, in climate jobs. These are the projections made by reputable organizations. And we're just not there yet. And we're, we don't want to have 100 million people in our community. We want climate jobs to be as mainstream as regular jobs. And we want people to find them by the same ways that people find regular jobs. It should not be just something for climate nerds. It should be something that you just run into in the normal course of your career. How do you make that happen, though? I mean, that's a way too big a task for, for your organization. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me tell you about how we're going to make this happen. Say you're a student uh, at UC Berkeley and you come to a job fair at your school and there are climate companies recruiting you there. Then you go on Coursera and you take an accounting class and it includes carbon accounting. What's and Coursera? For example, yeah, Coursera or Khan Academy or one of those educational portals. Then you go on LinkedIn to look for jobs. And when you look for jobs, there is a checkbox to only show climate jobs. So every stop of the way, whatever organization in the talent ecosystem you're interacting with, it supports you with getting into climate. So what we need to create is a movement in the talent ecosystem. Okay, but just hang on a second, because I can just hear that how big you're thinking with this, and it, it's something to totally to applaud. But you said that you've helped 100 people get jobs in climate. How mm -hmm. do you scale from 100 to 100 million? Yeah, by uh, giving up on the idea of being directly involved with every one of them. For example, we make friends with Stanford climate activist students who are in our community, and we come to them and say, hey, would you like it if from now on every job fair at Stanford had climate companies? They'll say, of course we would. And we'll say, wonderful, uh, why don't we help you connect to a few hundred climate companies in the community? Why don't we help you pay for renting a booth at the job fair at Stanford? Why don't we sit with you there and help you develop materials that you will show to students? So basically, this is a case where if we succeed in doing this, then every Stanford student who comes to a job fair is exposed to climate companies. And to tackle the other part, which is getting organizations with serious power to direct this power towards getting people into climate, we are planning to create a coalition. And we're going to call it the Climate Workforce Coalition. And it's going to be made up of organizations like ourselves and our peers, but most importantly, mainstream allies. This coalition is going to collaborate on how to get the talent ecosystem behind this cause. 
for example, you might imagine that perhaps the coalition will get LinkedIn to commit to developing a product strategy for climate job seekers. Or perhaps it will get MIT to commit to producing a certain number of electrolyzer chemists. A lot of the jobs that, that I hear you talking about, or the way you're talking about it now, sound, sound like very science and high-tech jobs. And um, I think you want it to be much more broadly based. What, what other sectors do you want to get into your uh-huh. ecosystem, as you call it? Because as far as I know, climate change jobs are everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're right that there is uh, a bit of a bias in what I'm talking about. I'm a tech guy, so I do lean a little bit towards this way, but we're going to be partnering with organizations that know more about the non-tech jobs, uh, about perhaps blue-collar jobs, and we're going to be working with them in pretty much the same way. So not everyone can just quit a job and transition into a sector they don't know. So what kinds of challenges challenges do people face mm-hmm. uh, as they do that transition into the climate job market? One is that the space is very complex. So some of us that are used to working in just one sector of the economy, for example, say you're a software engineer working on a social network, you're used to bits and bytes. And then when you want to work on climate, suddenly you're confronting the fact that you need to understand how the economy works. You need to understand much more than bits and bytes in order to make a confident decision as to what is the best use of your skills. And just confronting the physical world uh, is uh, it's a bit of an identity shift for many people. What would you say to anyone right now who's thinking about transitioning into a climate-related kind of work? I would tell them, go start looking for climate work. It's out there, and there is a very good chance that it needs your exact skills. What if they thought that was only volunteer work or it didn't really pay very well? Oh, that could not be further from the truth. I think that's a really big misconception. People think that, you know, there is big industry and then there's climate. Uh, But really... The way it is, is there is big industry and every single big industry is decarbonizing, is trying to reduce its emissions or become climate positive. And when you think of it this way, it becomes clear that this, that climate is the economy. For example, meat and there's alternative proteins, there's manufacturing and there's green manufacturing and so on and so on. So every, every industry has its climate twin that is gradually displacing the industry. So what would the Eugene Kirpachov, who was working in AI and machine learning at Google all those years, what would that Eugene think of the Eugene who's in the world today? Uh, I think uh, the past Eugene would be pretty happy for the current Eugene, uh, (laughs) because I I think I found something that just resonates with what I like doing. Uh, What I really like doing is looking at a messy, complicated problem space and finding some strategic solution that makes the whole thing much simpler. And I feel like I've, I've found it here. Well, I wish you luck as you go forward with this. And thank you for speaking to me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Often your experiences as a child influence the career you choose. That's certainly true for Robayat Karim. Today, she's a social worker and a professor, and she teaches her students about the inequities of climate change. CBC producer Fliss McGregor first brought us her story last September. Robayat Karim grew up in Dhaka, Bangladesh. When she was a young child, a severe flood washed through her city. 
we were staying home because we couldn't get around, everything was closed. We uh, had water pretty much up until the front steps of our home. And of course, this was quite a unique experience. You don't see water at that level in what is essentially the downtown part of the city. So it would be similar to having, you know, water up until, you know, uh, say, uh, Wellington or uh, Bay or any one of those streets in Toronto. And my grandfather took my sister and I out to the city to get groceries on a boat. And of course, as children, this is exciting, right? It feels like an adventure. But as Kareem got older, that childhood excitement wore off. She realized that was her first experience with climate change. We started to see the effects of that flood on other people, particularly people who were living in lower-rise buildings where they had water into their first floor or their home, their home was entirely flooded, right? As you go through the streets, you start to see the effect that it has on people and their lives and how disruptive it is, but also just how devastating it can be. You are really in a state of crisis um, as a result of the destruction or devastation that happens during these floods. When she was 14 years old, Kareem immigrated to the United States. Eventually, she graduated in social work in Los Angeles, but she almost couldn't finish her final year. Wildfires threatened to close her school. That's when she really started to think about climate change and who it affects. The most frustrating part of this conversation for me is that the people who have contributed the least to climate change has been impacted the most, while the people who have contributed the most do not face much consequences. So if you are wealthy or have access to insurance for your home, you are going to be much better off when there is a wildfire relative to those that don't have access to money or you know, resources that will help them bounce back. Even for myself, the heat wave and the floods that are impacting people in Bangladesh, I have a lot of guilt given that I have immigrated, I have privilege, and that many people from my community don't. For example, many of the garment workers, they have to go to work. They cannot call in sick if there is a heat wave. You know, they don't have the options like many people do in Toronto to just, you know, pack their cars and go to the cottage for the weekend if it's too hot. And in fact, many people in Toronto don't have those options as well. If you are coming from a vulnerable or marginalized community, you don't have the same options to escape this heat wave as people with privilege. Kareem now teaches social work at Seneca College in Toronto. Her students are in their 20s from all around the world. It's really important for students to understand uh, how people who are marginalized are very much impacted differently, inequitably, relative to those that have privilege. So if you are, for example, trying to find your own solution uh, to these warming temperatures by installing window AC units, but then being threatened by your landlords that you're going to be evicted if you do that. 
But all these, you know, these tenants are trying to do is make sure that their families are in a safe environment during these really hot days in the summer. What I try to do is make sure that I bring these real life scenarios into the classroom and walk through how they might support an individual who's been displaced by a flood or a wildfire or is being impacted by heat waves and now they're facing either housing instability or a financial crisis as a result of losing their home or being displaced from their community. I also encourage my students to make changes in their own life. So whether it's taking transit, whether it's supporting local farmers, or whether they're advocating through talking to, you know, their local counselors or writing a letter to the editor. You know, they can create change in their own communities through those small changes. It starts to get them thinking more about their role in this broader conversation around climate change. In my own life, I try to do many of these things. So whether it is moving closer to campus, so I'm not driving across the city, taking public transit every day, it's important for me to be part of the solution and to also be part of the broader conversation that is really centered on indigenous approaches and gives voice to the inequities that exist. And I know across Canada, many Canadians are thinking about the impact of climate change. So I hope by sharing this story, it adds to the collective voice, but also in small ways, inspires others to share their own experiences. Okay, we've heard from a software engineer and a social worker about how they're using their professional training to respond to climate change. And maybe you're thinking, there's no way to do that kind of thing in my workplace. Well, before you rush to any conclusions, I want you to meet Paloma Rose Garcia. Paloma is a hairdresser in Sydney, Australia. And while she's cutting, coloring and styling... She also chats with her clients about climate change, and she's educated herself so she knows her stuff. Now she's helping others in her profession learn to do the same. We spoke last summer, and I started by asking her how all of this got started. It was very natural for me. It was a very natural progression, I guess, as I was on my own personal uh, journey with climate, understanding more about climate change and the effects that it's having all around us. It just became a conversation that came up with guests. I mean, in the salon, one of the most spoken conversations that we have is about the weather. So it was very, very easy segue. What is it about hairdressers that you think makes you in a good position to talk about these I things? I mean, we're relationship builders. We have the most incredible relationships with our clients, with our guests. So they trust us. They trust us implicitly. You know, it's a safe space. It's a one-on-one -on -one environment. It's not daunting. They're very comfortable. And it can start off as something very small. It can be, you know, a small comment on, you know, we've just had months and months of endless rain, which is so unusual for Sydney, Australia. And and it's like, it's as simple as being like, oh my God, isn't this weather just crazy? And it's like, yeah, it's really sad to see the effects of climate change. It's, it's you know, there's no way that you can't, it's undeniable the effects that it's having. So it's a simple little um, comment or remark like that, that can turn into a bigger conversation. Right. But, but I guess there's also the point that 
that, you know, they're not really going to go anywhere, even if they're not really interested in what you're saying for for the time that they're in their chair. Cause, no, they're cause, stuck in the chair. Yeah, and you've got scissors <laughs> in your hands. Exactly. Look, I'm definitely... Like in my salon, I'm very passionate about client-led conversation. That's part of our servicing. So I don't like my hairdressers are like, what are you doing tonight? What's going on? So it's not like we're not pushing conversation. You know, if the guest shows interest, obviously you can continue it and go further down. But yeah, it's just, it's a safe space. It's, you know, it's a casual environment. You can keep it loose. You can keep it light. And then other, you know, other guests are like, oh, my God, tell me more. What can I do in my household to reduce our footprint? What can I do with my kids, you know? And, and you, you created a checklist of climate actions that you share with your clients. What kinds of, I did. What kind of things are yeah, on Yeah, and it's even, it's even on our website as well, which is super cool. So I think the biggest thing for that most people could do is uh, banking, making sure all your banking is with a bank that doesn't invest in the fossil fuel industry. When I have that conversation with guests, their eyes literally fall out of their head. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, for example, XY Bank, one of the biggest banks in Australia, has invested $143 million over the last three years in the fossil fuel industry. And as soon as they hear stats like that, they you know, they want to take action. So that's a really, really good one. Um, electrical suppliers, you know, there's so much crappy marketing out there. Like they probably think that, that they're getting green um, electricity, but they're absolutely not. So there's websites that actually show what um, electrical suppliers are doing. Um, yeah, whole bunch of things. But the banking one is definitely the biggest. I hope you don't have any bank loans with any of them. No, hell no. (laughs) Hell no. And, you know, like, and being, I guess it's like we're moving into more of that democracy sense and and taking the action and letting the bank know why you're leaving. I I just, I got to challenge you a bit, though. Why should people who are coming to you for hairstyling think that you have any expertise in climate change? The thing with this that we educate the hairdressers on is, don't pretend to be an expert. Don't pretend to be a climate scientist. You've got to make it your own story. Like I have resources where it's factual. Like I know there's one great website that literally compares every bank in Australia and every super fund. So it shows you who are the green ones and who are the nasty ones. But I've made it my own story. I've got two children. That's my narrative. You're, you're doing it for them. Yeah. And you don't just talk to your own clients about climate change. You're also teaching your colleagues, you just mentioned that, to talk to theirs as well. Tell me about the workshops you've run for other hairdressers. So I've hooked up with a um, climate scientist of 25 years, one of Australia's best. And I've also hooked up with a social scientist. So we have put together an hour and a half program, little workshop. We know that hairdressers don't like to sit for too long. So we keep it at an hour and a half. The first 45 minutes is with the climate scientist, understanding everything they need to know about what is climate change. Because majority of people really don't understand the facts. They don't understand the science of it. And then the last 45 minutes is how to hold conversation with people on climate change. So it's really educational. Um, It's easy to digest. And yeah, everyone's loved receiving it. We've educated probably about 450 hairdressers so far. So we're hoping many, many conversations from that. And I'm wondering what you hear from them. How has the, the workshop helped them start those conversations? 
They love it. Look, I definitely, I, I always found the journey quite easy, but like I've mentioned to you, I don't shy away from having hard conversation. I lean into that space. A lot of other people obviously find it a little bit more challenging, but it's just about making it your own. For example, one friend of mine who's a great hairdresser who has two beautiful salons in Sydney, very successful, her and her husband and her two kids, they're building their family home. So her narrative and her story is around, she went straight back to her husband, insisted on solar panels, sat down with a builder and worked out every single possibility of making their new home as climate friendly. So that's her narrative. Just more generally, Paloma, what difference do you think it makes to have more people talking about climate change? I want it to be at the forefront of people's minds. Like it's all over the news it's happening, but it just seemed like this big dark elephant in the room that no one knew how to handle. But when I share with them the information around, say, banking, their electrical supplier, they love that it's tangible changes that they can do at home that make a big difference. But Australia has seen some devastating climate-related events over the past couple of years. Oh, my God. Wildfires, flooding. How has that affected people's interest in the subject? I mean, it's definitely undeniable now. Uh, Those fires, I mean, it was scary. Like my kids were having nosebleeds every day from school. They were coming home with bloody noses for about two months straight. From the smoke? You could not breathe. Oh, yeah. 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 The people that have still lost everything. We lost three billion animals. So... Yeah, it hit home for us, for sure. It's it's hit home, but there's still, I'm trying to bridge that gap between climate change and everyone taking action because we need it. It's urgent. And I gather that, that these, all these events are triggering that interest. It's even more intense now than it has been in the past. Of course, of course, yeah. What are your next plans for the workshops? I'm actually meeting up with my climate friends and we're going to roll this out around the country. So we're going we're gonna to work it out. We're going to work in all the major cities Uh, work with uh, product brands and get some support from my industry. But yeah, I foresee this being much bigger. I just want to get the word out there and I want to educate and empower other hairdressers. I'm wondering when you look towards the future, how hopeful do you feel? I am an eternal optimist. I 100% am and I do believe in the power of the people. Okay, Paloma, it's it's been great to talk to you and uh, thank you, and, and, thank uh, you so much for also reaching out to me, in yes. little Australia down under, <laughs> and be and be prepared. You might be hearing from some Canadian hairdressers soon. <laughs> I'm very open to it. Please get in contact. And if you want to get in touch with her, you can find out more about Paloma's work at paloma-salon.com/sustainability. Well, we asked, and you answered, dozens of nominations for local climate heroes have been flooding our inbox. And next week, we're bringing you a show chock full of them. We're talking ordinary people doing great things across the country. Just the influence, and as it spreads out like a wave, just the wave kind of encircles more and more people, and more and more people get involved and excited about it. And and they set off their circle of influence from there. Tune in next week to hear stories about neighbours influencing neighbours, as we recognize community climate champions. It's all part of a special episode to celebrate Earth Day.
Now, if you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, because that's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Zoe Yunker and Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Special thanks this week to Chad Pawson. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.